Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. And now, here is your host, the lovely, delightful, insightful, and all-around great gal, Ms. Barbara DeLong. I think when I retire and get really, really old, I'm going to have this to play over and over again. Um, Ken Quiet Hawk has the most lovely voice, and he likes to add to the material that he's given to read. Uh, tonight's a special night, day. Um, I have as a guest Maria Wheatley, and she is a second-generation dowser who's a leading authority on the geodetic system of Earth energies. She was taught how to decode and divine the land by her late father, Dennis Wheatley, who was considered to be one of the UK's top master dowsers. She is an accomplished author of books on sacred sites and dowsing. She's researched the esoteric design canons of prehistoric sites, druidic ceremonial enclosures, and the Knights Templar for many years. She studied Neolithic Britain and Bronze Age prehistory with the University of Bath alongside other professionals. And she combines her knowledge of archaeology and the earth energies with state-of-the-art equipment to locate and detect the hidden frequencies that the earth emits. Believing in the earth forces or dowsing is simply not enough for Maria. She wants to show the world that the prehistoric designers of ancient sites could locate and harness earth energy. Her findings challenge our understanding of sacred sites. And using dowsing, Maria discovered the elongated skulls of Stonehenge, which led to the remarkable untold history of Stonehenge and the Neolithic High Queen. You can find her at www.mariawheatley.com. Welcome to the show, Maria. <laughs> Thanks. Well, I just I can't tell you how excited I am about this this show because dowsing has been um something that has fascinated me forever and I keep telling people that it's older than they think and it doesn't just go back to the 1900s or 1800s it goes back probably thousands and thousands of years. That's right. Uh it certainly does. I mean, some of the oldest depictions of dowsing according to uh one dowser called Sig Longren were uh, appeared on cave paintings in Algeria going back to about 6000 BC. Oh wow. 
and, and Cleopatra was renowned to employ dowsers in search of gold. Wow, you know, I I did I knew it was thousands and thousands. I didn't realize it was that far back. But you know, there have been throughout time, I would imagine. And and when you think about it, um, without all of the electronic equipment we've got, with all of the stuff that's going on, you know, electronically, um, it's it's kind of the world would be a calmer place where we would be able to detect those earth energies just from our feet um, if, if there weren't so much interference. Well, interference has been getting, you know, uh, worse each and every year with the advent of Wi-Fi and more phone masks. But, you know, despite that, I think, you know, at certain points in the earth where the energies are particularly strong, you know, most people can feel some kind of difference uh, within the temple space. Oh, yeah. And you live, I mean, in the middle of megalithic heaven. Um, <laughs> I mean, you've got, you've got megalith. You, you can't spit and not hit a megalithic circle in England. I know. I consider myself thoroughly spoiled. Uh, yes, uh, I live quite close to the world's largest stone circle called Avebury Henge. And uh, just down the road, actually, from, from where I am now, is a huge Neolithic mound called Merlin's Mount in the grounds of a private college, which, which is a Neolithic monument going back to about 5,000 uh, years ago. And I'm about sort of 17 miles away from Stonehenge as well. And just down the road, I've got even more stone circles called the Rollwright Stones in Oxfordshire. So you're right, I'm, uh, I'm in the megalithic capital of the ancient world. <laughs> I, how could you not? I mean, of course, your father being a master dowser certainly, I'm, I'm sure, helped you to be able to trek through a lot of amazing places and, and detect the feelings that you were getting. I think one thing that a lot of people don't understand, um, while dowsing for water is primarily what what we are familiar with, you can douse for just about anything. That's right. I mean, uh, water divining or water witching, as it's called uh, in the USA, is the most kind of accepted interpretation of dowsing. But you can f use dowsing for absolutely anything, for medical diagnosis, for example, to dowsing for more uh, profound things like earth energies and uh, ley lines. And you can, uh, you can apply it to literally any aspect of your life from finding lost keys, and don't we do that all of the time, <laughs> yes, yes. To, to a variety of, of different expressions. It is a wonderful spiritual tool that can be used to decode your home even to make it a safer space from particular grid lines or earth energies that emit geopathic stress, that's toxic energy. So it really does have practical application for our health and uh, well-being. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I know for sure that it, it detects wells. I was, um, I, I had a group of people I was introducing to dowsing rods and I had them going around the house and I said, you know, find, find water. And, you know, they kept finding water between my living room and my dining room. And I said, well, that's interesting. I don't know that there's water there and and but but it's you've you've definitely everyone you know got the got it strongly there and about two months later i had to find my well 
and I, I brought a well man in and he couldn't find it outside. He said, we're going to have to dig up your yard. I said, I don't think so. And so I called a previous owner and it turns out my well is in my house directly under the archway that goes from my living room to my dining room. Yes, I mean, uh, underground uh, water quite close to us um, in what's called referred to as groundwater, which is from rainfall, is very, very easy uh, to detect. It gives off a kind of surface pattern normally of three lines or we'll just simply make a hazel rod or a willow rod uh, twitch or make a kind of metal L rods cross. So, yeah, groundwater is, is really easy to detect. And it's particular times of, uh, of the moon, like a super moon especially, or a micro uh, moon, that causes the groundwater to drop a little bit, like a sponge soaking it up. And today, the really advanced water boards and water borers uh, that use technology uh, register any tiny drop in pressure in the groundwater through sophisticated technology these days. Well, now, what's fascinating is you, you have you've divided water into two different types, which I am, I have an artesian well. Um, It goes way, 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 way down. So can you explain what the two different kinds of well of, of water are? Yes. There are two different types of water. I mean, the first type is quite common. I've just described it, groundwater or artesian wells, for example, that uh, are quite deep, uh, are caused normally through the through rainfall that gathers and fills up the underground streams uh, and aquifers, for example. And some of that rainfall could have fallen, you know, in the Jurassic period, 30,000 years ago. It was collected in, in deep pools of water. And, uh, and I consider that to be Yang water, rainfall water that came from the sky. Now, law, it's long been said in esoteric water divining law that there's another type of water. And this type of water is very special, very healing. And it's generated by the earth herself independent of rainfall so it's like chemically produced deep deep within the earth and certainly just recently articles in the prestigious nature magazine have come to the conclusion that this in fact is correct the earth certain rocks within the earth can generate water but here's the thing this is how a professional dowser could discern the two Certain artesian wells and yang water give off the old-fashioned sign of water, which is the wavy lines like the sign of Aquarius, the water bearer, or the chevron that you see uh, around the world. That always, always means water. And that's the type of pattern it emits uh, on the ground that a divining rod can pick up on. Whereas very, very, very deep yin water, chemically produced deep in the earth, produces a spiral pattern, and that's called a geospiral pattern. And our ancient ancestors wanted to incorporate that spiral pattern into their ancient sites, be that a pyramid or a stone circle or an ancient mound. They tend to be sighted above certain spiral patterns. I've done tests with uh, an engineer called David Webb above these spiral patterns that we call a geospiral. And they do seem to emit harmonic hertz 
frequencies of about 7 to 10 hertz. And 7 hertz is especially harmonic because that's when your brain is in alpha mode and feels really relaxed. So these places that give off those hertz emissions can make us feel relaxed and good. So stone circles, well, they're good for your health. (laughs) They relax you. They're they're good places to be. And people sense this uh, when they enter sacred space anyhow. Now, you know that your geospiral fascinates me. Now, with a dowsing rod, how do you get the graphic of the geospiral? Does it does it do a geospiral? Does it do um, does it does it dance in a different way? How how does the geospiral, the graphic of the geospiral come come into being? That's a really good question. And really, Dowsim employs three main premises, okay? And the first premise is information Dowsim. And information Dowsim means you can program a rod to respond to your question. So I could say to my Dowsim rod, in your backyard or in my backyard, uh, is there a geospiral associated within 50 meters of this property? And my dowsing rod would say yes or no. Okay, so I've employed information dowsing to ascertain if there is a geospiral or whatever I'm dowsing for within a certain vicinity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, the second premise of dowsing employs what's called directional dowsing. And directional dowsing is great fun. And uh, this is covered in uh, one of the books, The Essential Dowsing Guide, which is published in the States, actually, by Ozark Mountain Publishing, uh, available from my website, theaveryexperience.co.uk. And directional dowsing is great fun because you then say to your rod, it's saying, yes, there's a geospiral in your vicinity. And you then say to one rod held in whatever hand feels comfortable, show me the direction of the geospiral and your rod will start to waver and point to a given direction yeah Mm -hmm. then once your rod is pointing to the direction basically you follow it and that's called tracking which is the third premise of dowsing so use directional dowsing show me the direction of the geospiral you follow it until your rod goes to what's called the found position and that's normally when it comes towards your body or repulses away from your body and that means bingo you're probably at the center of the geospiral or whatever it is you're divining so it's really kind of easy to employ information dowsing directional dowsing and tracking to discover uh, an object now these geospirals have been located and known about for centuries because um, cathedrals and, and religious sites are, are usually located on or near them, correct? Yes, I mean, the, the main discovery of um, yin water, as I call it, that's the water born within Gaia that emits a spiral pattern, what has been called in the past primary water. It was really first uh, discovered in the 1930s by a dowser called uh, Reginald Smith, who was a creator of the British Museum, actually, and a, and a really good top archaeologist. And he noticed that at the center of stone circles or standing stones that are on their own, what we call monoliths or an isolated standing stone, and other monuments tended to be under deep water, which he called a blind spring. 
Then around 10 or 20 years later, there was a master dowser called Guy Underwood who uh, realized that the blind spring gave off a spiral pattern and he called that a geospiral. Uh, my family inherited all the unpublished um, surveys of Guy Underwood and his manuscripts. So uh, I've been studying what he called, Guy Underwood called the geodetic system of Earth energies for about 25 uh, years of my life. Uh, because Guy did publish a book actually called The Pattern of the Past, but unfortunately it was the wrong book that went to print because sadly Guy had passed over and uh, he was a researcher. So he had manuscript after manuscript <laughs> after manuscript, you know, and uh, they, the, the chap that published it on his behalf thought the top one would have been the latest, but it turned out, no, it wasn't. It was the one at the bottom, which is kind of counterintuitive and you wouldn't expect that. Yeah. But, uh, but I've, I've really kind of researched uh, Underwood's uh, work and brought the kind of correct information out in one of my books called Divine and Ancient Sites. So, so I hope to resolve any of the problems from uh, his original work. Well, I think something that, that most people don't, I, I, it, it isn't that they don't understand it, they just don't think about it, that the earth does emit energy. And there are places that it is stronger and some that are weaker and and i think i i know people that have been to avery and um they they speak of the energy in the stones there that that you can literally back up to a stone and feel it and um the stone circles still to this day even though they they are old and weathered are still resonating the energy that 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 they were created for but even at one site near Avebury, Barbara, called the Sanctuary, there's nothing that exists today. Sadly, it got pulled down in the uh, around 1724, and the stones were used for building material. So there's nothing that actually exists there. But despite the fact that the stones were raped and pillaged, you still have the earth energies there, and people still sense things. So even at Avebury, which is quite reconstructed, I mean, Avebury Henge is a reconstructed site. It was reconstructed in the 1930s, by a fantastic archaeologist called Alexander Keeler. And some of the stones are set in concrete, whilst uh, a few others are what's called in situ. They're actually in the chalk bedrock and have never been disturbed. But even round some of the stones set in concrete, the earth energies there are so strong that the, the stones still resonate particular energies. And the unique thing about Avebury is you have... Um, associated with lays, with a ley line, as uh, you say uh, in the States, mm -hmm. associated with a, a ley line, you have on a ley system, which is far more powerful than just a ley, you have two coils, rivers, imagine them as, of earth energy coiling around the ley, like in a caduceus style, yeah? Okay. Now, those two living and sentient earth currents tend to be male and female, and they are very strong. They are much, much stronger than the lay that kind of keeps them 
relatively close to, to one another. And at Avebury, you have a male and a female current going right the way through the center of both of the inner stone circles, which really does allow us to become back into balance, raise our consciousness, and allow us to, to feel differently about ourselves. I mean, for me, stone circles take you from the ordinary into the extraordinary, and they change your consciousness and your perception about yourself, quite often about your life, and quite often about your life path. What should you be doing? Stone circles kind of magically guide us to become uh, our kind of who we should be on a higher level. And I see that all of the time. So sometimes when people come to these ancient sites, they can be life changing for some. Oh, I, I, I don't doubt that for, the, for a moment. It is, I, I know that you, I mean, there are, you, you are the mother load of stone circles there. There's no doubt about it. But, but are they all over the world and they just haven't been discovered or they've been destroyed? I mean, is this something that is unique unto your particular area? No, uh, not at all. You can go all the way across Europe and you will come across standing stones and stone circles from Poland. In fact, when uh, uh, Himmler and the Nazis invaded Poland, that the first thing they did was cordon off the stone circle there, made it a spiritual occult pilgrimage for, for Nazis. So Poland has uh, stone circles, the Czech Republic. You can go to places like Sardinia that has uh, standing stones and temple spaces in Malta. Then you can go to India and there will be standing stones there. You could go to South Korea. Yeah, very much in the news at the moment with Kim yeah. in the North Korea. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you can go to South Korea and that is the dolmen capital of the world. There are over 45 dolmen monuments in South Korea alone. And a dolmen monument, for your listeners that may not be familiar with that term, although Google is a god these days, uh, you, you could imagine and visualize two stones not that far from each other with a gigantic capstone on top. Yep, that's a dolmen. And they are littered all across uh, Korea, uh, South Korea. So, yeah, you can find standing stones worldwide. It was almost like there was an ancient culture that had a similar spiritual perception back in the ancient uh, world. Ancient civilizations created similar monuments, although some were quintessentially known to their own environment, like the pyramids of Egypt and places in North Africa, like the Sudan. Uh, so you do get quintessential monuments, but standing stones and other stone monuments, they are worldwide from, from Spain, Morocco, all over the world. Yeah, I'm just thinking in the U.S. and I can't think of any. And, you know, they must be here. But, but most there's a gigantic dolmen in the state of New York, which has a capstone weighing, uh, oh, gosh, I can't remember, but it's something over 20 tons. Wow. Now that I have it. I know that at American Stonehenge, um, there are some. But, but you know, you've, you've, got, you've got the mother load there. And what is fascinating is, one, you know, something that has fascinated me forever is Stonehenge. And, um, you know, my, my grandfather was there in the early 1900s. And, and I look at it today and I just think, you know, people aren't really 
allowed to be close enough to really experience the energy that comes from it, really. You can if you pay the money, basically. Ah. If if you want private access to Stonehenge, although they don't really uh, overtly advertise it on their website, EnglishHeritage.org, but they you, but if you phoned them up or you emailed them and you say I want private access to the center of the stone circle and you're prepared to pay their fee then yes you can otherwise you go round the monument with 500 people at any one time in office hours but out of office hours that's when you've time to stonehenge ah well obviously you've been able to sneak in or or go in legally um what was the you know i i I, I listened to a lot of your videos, and you were you talked in one about how Stonehenge was actually built in four different stages. It wasn't an all-in-one thing. No, Stonehenge has many, many different phases, and we must remember that it was 1,500 years of human activity that made Stonehenge you see today. It wasn't made the how you how we all are familiar with seeing Stonehenge overnight. So the first phase of Stonehenge was a very, very large ditch and bank, which we call a henge monument. You have lots of henge monuments uh, in Ohio uh, as well. Mm. Uh, and then on the inside of that uh, ditch and bank, which would have uh, gleamed chalk white because beneath the Wessex soil in Avebury and Stonehenge is chalk, literally what you write on blackboards. It's literally brilliant white. So it looked quite stunning, inside of which were 56 blue stones from Wales, which was quite some distance away, over 130 or so miles away. And that was the first phase of Stonehenge. Uh, so, And then that got dismantled. And uh, then the Stonehenge that we're familiar with started to be built with the huge 30 sarsen stones with the perfect circled lintels on top. And then they put uh, other features on the inside, which was a circle of blue stones. And then the huge five trilophons or trilophons that go around and uh, a, a, a blue stone feature inside of that. Then they decided to take down some of the blue stones and redevelop that over a period of time. So it's, it's what's called a composite monument. It's built in various different phases over 1,500 years, as was Avebury Henge close by. Avebury Henge, that contains the world's largest stone circle, was again built in various different phases. Well, and, and as far as I can tell, they're, they were meant for healing. They were, they, they were, they were, they had a healing energy, and so people who experienced them could experience shifts within themselves that could bring about healing. When we look to the rich literature uh, over folklore, medieval periods, and even going way, way back to 1126 AD, that's even before America was discovered by the so-called you know, white people, and <laughs> that's debated these days. But even going back to the, uh, you know, the, the 1100s, people spoke about the healing properties of stone. There was a very famous book written by uh, a chap of the clergy called Geoffrey of Monmouth. And Geoffrey of Monmouth wrote a, a book that is still in print today, and this is going back to 1123. He wrote The History of the Kings of Britain. 
And that was the sacred holy history of England, starting from the time of King Brutus. And he described Stonehenge as being very, very healing, especially if you uh, doused, uh, as in water, uh, doused the, the stones with water, collected that water and bathed in it. It would be a cure-all, for example. And then later on, 500 years later on, recorded in the 1600s by an antiquarian called John Aubrey, if you scraped the stones of Stonehenge and added water to it and drunk it, that too would be a cure-all. So the, we have lots of rich uh, folklore about all of the healing stones across the, the, the breadth of the British Isles. It's not just Stonehenge. It's stone after stone circle after stone circle that talks about how to heal yourself and how to heal children, especially. A lot of the stone circles of the British Isles, and especially in southern England, such as uh, one stone setting called Menantol in Cornwall. It's a big circular stone, perfectly circular, carved beautifully with about a two-foot hole inside of it. It looks like a polo mint. Do you have polo mints in the U.S.? Uh, probably, but I'm not familiar with them. <laughs> oh, right. It's like a, a circle uh, mint with a big hole in it. Anyway, you, you, you Like a lifesaver. Like... Yeah, it could be. Yes, like a lifesaver, that's right. If you, if you imagine that stood up uh, as a megalithic feature, that's melanchol. And if you crawled through it, you'd be cured of rheumatics. If children went through it, they, they'd crawl through it, they'd be cured of rickets and uh, measles and various other diseases. So there is a rich history of, of healing stones. And one of the strangest accounts was in the Victorian times in 1833 when one witness went to a place uh, in Ireland called Clock Nave Deckland. And it's uh, a very sacred stone that has an arch beneath it. So it's not like a lifesaver. It's got kind of like an arch <laughs> at the bottom that you can see through and crawl through. And that was always said that on December the 22nd, which is often the winter solstice falls on that day, and which was Christianized to St. Declan's Day, hence the name of uh, the stone, people would go semi-naked uh, and crawl and kind of like swim towards the stone on their bellies, go through the stone and be healed. And in 1833... 1,100 people joined together at that standing stone uh, and at least 80% of those people were healed. And their priesthood hated it. <laughs> they thought it was a pagan practice. And even, uh, it was recorded in the local paper, they whipped some parishioners for, for doing that pagan rite. But it was so strong, the mythology of the British Isles, go there and you will be healed or go to this particular place and you will become fertile if, if you have trouble conceiving children, for example. So, uh, so I really do feel a lot of standing stones were for, for healing. Why? Is it the property of the stone? Is it the quartz? Is it the sandstone? Is it the granite? There's very, very many different types of stone used to create stone circles. But the one common feature that they all have is the type of earth energy that they're set upon. 
yeah? And that's when you get a very, very deep pool of water above another deep pool of water. If we imagine layer and layer and layer and layer going down within the earth and you have pockets of water, pockets of water, pockets of water, all of those different pockets of water start to generate spiral after spiral after spiral. And that creates a huge healing energy field and then the stones were placed upon these like mazes as they're often called to create these healing environs and there's a stone not far from me in the county of Gloucestershire I live in the county of Wiltshire that's called the long stone of Mitchinhampton and it's a stone with a hole in it. Any stone that has a hole in it is regarded as sacred in the British Isles and uh, it was always said, if you put your arm through it, it will heal your arm. If you put your leg through it, it would heal your knee or your thigh or your ankle, etc. And I had a bad knee, uh, so I decided to go to the Mitchinhampton Longstone, and I put my knee through it. It was quite awkward, actually, because now you're up at an angle. <laughs> yeah. And, and your leg's dangling through this hole, and people are looking at you as they're walking by, as if you're, you know, you're half crazy. Uh, but within about 20 minutes, that, that my knee had definitely uh, improved uh, tenfold. So there is uh, not only a rich history, if we kind of reenact these old stories told to us by our great-great-grandmothers and carried on in an oral tradition, though they do us, allow us to see the healing aspect of the landscape. But with, you know, with, with all of this rich history, and and with with the evidence that the geospirals, you know, are, are are power places, why isn't more done with with building hospitals or nursing homes or things like that upon these these centers of energy to help heal the people? Exactly. I mean, this is what a part of uh, my my path is. I do. I have taught architects uh, from uh, one fantastic architect from Italy called uh, called Marina. I shall mention her her second name. Uh, but she she is really developing uh, her knowledge of earth energies for exactly future future new builds to incorporate these positive uh, life enhancing energies. So there, there is there is a couple of breakthroughs, and I've I've taught other architects, but sadly they tend to be from abroad and not from England. So, but I think we we are getting there. There's a perception out there that a, a dowser or somebody that talks about Earth energy is a fringe lunatic. Sadly, <laughs> a lot of people in the, the British Isles are labelled you are a fringe lunatic. You know, even though that I have studied archaeology just recently in Oxford University, you know, and passed an academic paper, probably the most boring thing I've ever written in my life, but <laughs> it got passed uh, on a transitional phase uh, of uh, Bronze into the Iron Age. But we do have that perception and that needs to be broken down. And I do feel that the, the, sometimes the media is behind this. They will kind of jump on and say it's all new age slush. And sadly, people get wrapped up in that. But that said, there's, there was a very famous guy. There is a very famous guy over here called Tony Robertson. He does like archaeological programs, and one of which was called Walking Through History. And he wanted uh, a dowser, and uh, I was invited along to be on the TV show. And he portrayed it in a very positive light because 
we weren't allowed to talk prior to the programme. He didn't want any power of suggestion to say anything. I just had to hold him the rod live to the camera and say, you know, walk along there, you might get something, basically. And uh, the rods just turned so fast. He looked towards the camera and said, but I didn't do anything. They just turned. (laughs) And so from that moment on, uh, I think Dowson, in the eyes of the British public, went up a notch because people were thinking, oh, if Tony Robertson thinks it's good, you know, it must be. So things are changing, but not fast enough because we should be thinking about toxic energies in hospitals and getting the beds laid out correctly to avoid what's called the the curry grid lines and the Hartman grid lines and really starting to learn to live in harmony with the earth again, as did our ancient ancestors. Yeah, that's, I think, the the biggest thing. And, you know, you you talked in, in one of your videos about uh, World War II and the, tun- the people who were living in the tunnels um, that were over some of these geospirals and that, that you know, while it's a hardship to live in a tunnel, they found that they were being healed by the tunnel itself just by living there. That's right. Uh, during the London Blitz, uh, the Second World War, obviously, obviously people were made homeless, sadly so. Yeah. And there was a place in Kent, not, that's not far from London for those that don't know, called Chislehurst Caves. So it was a natural place for people to go. They had no, nowhere else. And some communities, you know, were, were living and, and uh, created there. And it was reported by the local media, of which Guy Underwood, the master dowser I previously mentioned, recorded, that people were having these spontaneous healings, be that of uh, rheumatic pain, to take and uh, they 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 became to be slightly revered by the people that once lived in them and he decoded the place and said yes it's down to the the female uh, geospiral pattern that's emitted these harmonic uh, frequencies so so yes i mean that that was very very well documented uh, at the time and also quite widely documented in wales and uh, this was again recorded by Geoffrey of Monmouth and later by uh, an antiquarian. And it, it relates to a church floor slab in Carnelian Church in Wales. And it was the, the kind of memorial slab of a couple called John and Isabella Colmer, who died in around 1376. It was a very, very old medieval church. Now, uh, Underwood went there, and I myself have been there to Dalsit, and it's over a powerful, powerful spiral energy. I mean, it gives you tingles. You could send anyone into that energy zone, and they go, whoa, what's going on? Here. And in 1770, it was recorded that a lot of the children in a nearby village sadly became very sick. And 16 were taken and placed uh, individually uh, and in couples on the slab on the eve of Ascension Day, which is normally, I think, about 40 days after Easter Sunday. I think it's 39 or 40, I'm, I'm not honestly sure, but thereabouts. And it was recorded that they were all healed. How can how can people dispute stuff like this? I mean, I it would seem to me that someone would be taking advantage of it, and and you know it, it, it's like um, it, it, it's it seems to me that with with 
documented healings like this, that people would pay attention to it and utilize it instead of, you know, you know, turning their nose up at it. Yes, I I think, again, you know, perceptions are changing and there is a gradual uh, remembering. Uh, Now that more younger people are getting into archaeology and the building construction industry from the architects to those that design houses, they're the ones that seem to be, you know, uh, open minded uh, and not kind of brought up through a kind of 1950s, 60s and 70s institution of what, you know, a building uh, should be like. But I mean, even more, uh, doc- there's so, so much evidence around because when phones were stir- first started to become very fashionable for houses, you know, like the sort of 60s, 70s, you know, when most people were thinking about getting a, a telephone and more wires were, were being uh, put up by telephone uh, engineer companies, it was noticed that the Earth's voltages, these are natural voltages in the Earth, which I would call Earth energies or Earth currents, but, you know, they're called Earth, Earth voltages. And it was noticed that they started to interfere fear with the telephone cabling yeah it was like the 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 ground below could influence wire above uh, and especially when they were in the earth themselves so they had to do what's called a relay switch put a relay switch into the kind of telephone uh, engineer side of things to stop these what they called parasite earth voltages interfering but it's interesting to note when you are a stone circle proper that has retained its circular shape unlike Avery and Stonehenge which are ruinous and no longer retain their circular shape so if you go to a place like Rollwright in Oxfordshire or the Merry Maidens uh, in Cornwall, then uh, you will find that the stones kind of react to these earth voltages. And if you hold a pendulum or an L-rod, a dousing instrument, basically, above a stone and get a friend to stand, you know, by a couple of stones as well. Well, I'm in groups. I get groups to kind of do this. Then the certain stones that are paired above the same earth voltage, the pendulums will go around in the same gyrations and turn exactly at the same time, indicating a kind of positive and a negative polarity that's in harmony with the earth voltages below. And, and again, these are very strong energies that can go along a lay can go along a ley line. It can be channeled across the countryside, these earth voltages. And this is the long lost wisdom, possibly a free energy that the ancestors, I am sure, were fully aware of and utilized for themselves. Oh, yeah, I would agree on that one. And, and especially because these, these spiritual sites really go along these lines. And it, it's, it's, if you if you connect all of them, you'll find um, a web that that you know really encircles the earth that is quite profoundly powerful. And you know why we haven't been tapping into this and utilizing it is beyond me. Yes, I mean the the lays are important because they seem to transmit uh, energy. Although an agricultural scientist back in the 1970s did a lot of uh, documented series of experiments upon lays to find out their energetic quality and how they influence living organisms. Okay. 
uh, because it was long said by the ancient Chinese who created a science around geomancy, which they called feng shui or feng shui. Uh, you say tomato, I say tomato, yeah. <laughs> whatever. And uh, it was always documented that uh, the lays, the straight lines, energy, qi energy travels too fast along it. So it could be detrimental. The, the earth currents that often entwine these energies, they're a different ball game. They're, they're a little bit more harmonic, although they can emphasize your emotions. All earth energies can emphasize your emotions. So that sometimes it's better to be in a neutral space and interact with the earth energies. Go there for a particular reason, yeah? Because if mm-hmm. you do live above them, the master dowser called Hamish Miller, and I'm in full agreement with the late and great Hamish Miller, they, they make you very high if you're happy or if you're slightly low, they make you very low. They kind of amplify your uh, emotions. But nonetheless, it was just by the uh, agricultural scientific uh, experiments that if you do place uh, crops, like mustard seeds he used as one example, and then a root vegetable like carrots or another, it will become quite stunted growth. Uh, will occur along lays. So the Chinese were bang on the money. They realized that these places were places you would go to to get energy and be energized, but you wouldn't necessarily live above them. And it became a kind of new age fallacy, in my opinion, when the lays got hijacked by uh, by some people and they just said knowing nothing about ley lines at all saying that it's a good place to live above a crossing point of lays i mean any chinese uh, geomancer would be a gasp uh no you that's the wrong place to live for for example so the the ancients categorized all of these different energy patterns and said yes this one's good to live above, but no, that one isn't. This is a good place to go to, and especially at particular times of the year. That is very important when you're interacting with the stone circle is when it's most powerful. Let me let me ask you, I mean, I know that there, there is not um, a building over every geospiral that, that exists. Um, in areas where there are geospirals, that that grow crops and things like that um is the food that is grown over a geospiral um any healthier than the crops that are not in my uh, opinion i think yes it is i think anything grown in harmony with the earth force uh is going to be full of the life force of gaia and that life force will be transferred to you i got asked by um uh, a farmer actually uh, I won't say which county because he, I know he'll want to remain nameless but for for reasons that I thought were a bit silly he wanted to start using Monsanto spray yeah I don't agree with oh. it personally yeah uh, but anyway he did and then he asked me to come along and douse it because uh, I'd found water for him etc so you know he thought there was something in it and it had no life force no life force it was dead oh, technically wow technically dead so that convinced him not for a few years i must admit uh but eventually uh uh, he stopped but monsanto sprays are now being used quite freely in the county where i am Uh, and what people don't realize is when that goes into the food system it doesn't have a living life force it's literally zombie food 
So we, we have to take responsibility of what we eat because if you use what's called a bovis meter, and a bovis meter was developed by some French diviners at the turn of the last century to measure the life force of anything. It could be the life force of a building, my chi energy, the food that I'm eating, a cancer frequency, a light force frequency. They created this easy to use uh, bovis meter, which all you need is a pendulum and you can start registering the frequency of anything. Yeah. So uh, certain foodstuffs, uh, when we use the bovis meter, will come up in the carcinogenic zone. And that's that's mainly like cheap processed white bread is probably Mm -hmm. one of the worst things that, you know, that you can eat. Whereas, you know, if you get living water that is healthy or living foods that are organic, they are full of the light force of Gaia. And that's that's the difference. And and bovis meters are available to buy easily on the Internet. And they're a really good uh, spiritual tool to check the frequency of anything and everything. And I would recommend anyone half interested uh, in dowsing to get one. And I do training on that sort of thing at uh, esotericcollege.com. But you can find out your own information on uh, Google these days. Want to spell it for me? The bovis, it's B-O-V-I-S, biometer is its technical name. And that's B-I-O-M-E-T-E-R, the bovis biometer. Okay. Because um, I, have, I have long been saying to people, you know, if, if, you know, who say I eat healthy and I still don't feel well and my response is, well, then you're not eating organic because food, just because of what they process it with or spray it with, is losing its its nutrients. So that so that you think you're eating healthy, but you're not. Exactly, it's you losing its nutrients, and you're very very correct. And on a metaphysical level, that's the physical level. It is losing its life force. Everything has chi in it, and the more that depleted the chi gets, the less that you will get out of uh, the food. Uh, and that is such a true state that humanity is in at the moment. What we are eating and how we are growing our food has to change. And some of the ways I'm trying to uh, change that is looking at some old farming techniques uh, with in harmony with the earth force to try and see if we can get some good crops growing quite fast. Uh, without the need of uh, drenching in uh, ghastly chemicals. Yeah, no, it is frightening, the the amount of chemicals that go into the food that we think, you know, looks so pretty in the grocery store, but but actually it it it's like eating sawdust. Yes, and I think this is where you know uh, dowsers and people that are uh, quite au fait with earth energies can look at a land and uh, start to say put one crop here and grow there. I mean, it's one area that I'm now in, investigating, which I feel is out of urgency. Oh, now, I, when you yeah. when you look at the old way that people just used to plow, yeah, when when people plowed in medieval times, you won't have this in your country. You won't even see this in your country. You used to call what's called the ridge and farrow technique. It's basically a bump and a dip and a bump and a dip, and it makes fields look wavy, yeah, mm-hmm. like like a sea. And what what some of the uh, ancients uh, did 
because some of these fields go back to the Bronze Age, yeah, and they have been kept going, you know, over the centuries, over the millennia. They were in harmony with particular flows of underground water, particular flows of earth energy patterns, so that all of those bumps and ridges and furrows, as they were called, were actually marking out the energies in the land. And that's what the ancients were planting their foods upon. And if we can get back that technique, then, you know, we could just plow a little bit differently to what we do today, which is just putting a gigantic stainless steel uh, seven inch plow into the ground and ripping through Gaia. That's how we plow today. Change that tactic a little bit and plow in the right place in the right method and you will have food so rich in the life force, that humanity will be able to be far more conscious and not dumbed down and far more healthy. Oh, gosh, yeah. Because, you know, I, I live in farm country and the, 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 um, the organic stuff I can get is amazing. But the grocery store stuff is just awful. <laughs> and so, that, so that, you know, you, you kind of you wait real hard for the for the farmers markets to start to open in the springtime for sure. Um, I wanted to to go back to Avery because you had um, you were able to even um, create not create but but detect bands of energy that related to the chakras on the stones, which fascinated me. Yes, that was a, an experiment, thankfully so, uh, done about 11 years ago now. Uh, and thankfully so, because the, the chap, uh, Rodney Hale, who was an original member of the Dragon Project, which was a group of people from the 70s and 80s that were testing out particular instruments at stone circles it was Rodney that was prepared uh, to work with me he he told me not that long ago that because of the advent of wi-fi and electromagnetic energies it would have made our job 10 times more difficult mm -hmm. so uh so yeah so about sort of 10 years ago I met up with uh, Rodney Hale and uh, my late father and dowsers such as Bill Lewis had long been saying that there were certain above energy bands if you like if you imagine a standing stone and then you imagine it has five kind of like lines going through it but there's actually a spiral going around the stone of energy creating five above ground bands and two below because the stone is rooted into the ground obviously and that creates seven uh, bands of energy which I have always likened uh, to the chakras and what Rodney did, I mean, he's a very clever chap. He got uh, a, a free, uh, electromagnetic sensing uh, detector, which was very uh, sensitive. He asked me to douse for the energy bands to begin with, and we gently marked them with a tiny bit of chalk that could be easily removed with a dot of water. And then he moved the uh, instrument up the face of the stone, but he made it audible and he made it so he could look at a, a spectrum analyzer and figure out what was going on at the same time. So he moved it up the face of the stone and whenever it uh, detected electromagnetic uh, energy, it would do a zzz, like a beeping uh, zzz noise. And uh, exactly where the energy bands were, were exactly where the sound was being emitted and it came up on the spectrogram as being exact 
match, 99.9% .9 accurate that that was uh, occurring in the stones. And the interesting thing about these uh, energy bands is that bands uh, number two above ground transmits a kind of linear beam of electromagnetic energy to every single stone in the, in the stone circle complex, yeah, it's creating this web of energy lines uh, within the stone circle itself, which uh, is called crosstalk communication between standing stones. It is truly phenomenal. And you can detect this, and uh, and Rodney certainly did. And uh, and I show people that I take out with you know dowsing rods and how to interact with that energy. Now the the fourth band above uh, ground level transmits a signal to the next stone circle, so it it creates like this lay of net energy network across and throughout the British Isles and possibly beyond. And we detected that in an outlying stone six miles away from the Rollwright Stone Circle in Oxfordshire, that that stones from the stones of Rollwright were communicating to the stone on what was called Spellsbury Down. Uh, it cannot be denied. So the interesting thing about uh, the kind of uh, third energy band that goes up through the face of the stone is if you lean against it roughly at a 45 degree angle, you're going to feel a force that pushes you into the stone or a force that pushes you away from the stone. Yeah, and that can be quite dramatic because people feel that they, they can't let go of the stone. They're pushed, being pushed into the stone, but they're not actually moving. They feel that they're being uh, pushed towards the stone. And I did a series of tests to do with weight at these energy bands because people would say they felt heavy afterwards or some people would say they felt lighter. Uh, so we got some uh, weight detecting equipment and these experiments need to be repeated correctly to see if it's actually occurring. Uh, but nonetheless, the experiments that we did showed that uh, if you leant against the stones uh, with the weight detecting equipment, some people were putting on weight rapidly. But as soon as they moved away from the stone, their weight would go back to normal. I was a part of the experiment. And when I led against the stone, I've always felt lighter around standing stones. And I was starting to lose weight quite quickly, but oh. take me away from the energy band and stand normal. And I backed to, to my normal weight. So I suddenly thought, I wonder if the ancient ancestors knew how to manipulate that kind of band for its weight and could make the stone somewhat lighter and easier to transport. It's not beyond the realms of possibility. Ability. No, oh, no, that's that's fascinating. I the the fact that they were broadcasting and you know literally aiming at other standing stones, um, you know, it creates a network of communication that is phenomenal. Yes, and and in a very large stone complex with what's called an outlying stone, that's like the heel stone to Stonehenge or the mm -hmm. Kingstone to the Rollwright stones, it's when a stone circle stands away from the main stone circle in effect, then what happens is all of the stones uh, from uh, uh, one particular energy band zap that stone there, making that stone a beacon stone, twice as energized. And then that kind of outline stone takes all of that energy and passes it to the next uh, 
standing stone or stone circle to the receiving stone. So that kind of is a transmitting stone. And we've done a lot of tests on that. But recently, David Webb, he's a retired engineer, that's helped me with particular experiments to do with air ionization over underground water, noted at the Rollwright Stones, uh, and I'm bringing a book out, uh, a guidebook about the Rollwright Stones pretty soon. It's, uh, it's a truly fascinating place that the stones are starting to transmit man-made signals. That's what they're designed to do. Yeah, They are designed by our ancient ancestors to be acupunctured into the earth, to really uh, pick up on those earth energies, and now they're transmitting man-made signals. So I do ask people to switch off their mobile phones if they can for like 10 or 15 minutes to experience the stones uh, how they should be experienced. Yeah, that's um, here in the States, we've got the stone chambers. And um, I've often wondered because they're mostly, mostly granite around the New England area. Anyhow, I've often wondered if their, their purpose had something to do with communication. Yes, I mean, granite is a a very good uh, medium. You get a lot of granite monuments in Karnak, France, uh, and in the south of England at a place called Cornwall. Uh, The Merry Maidens uh, and other stone settings are all of granite. Uh, And that is quite a high transmitter. So, you know, if you place uh, granite, and it's slightly radioactive to a certain degree as well, so it can can really transmit and receive quite quite well, and there when granite is placed onto an earth energy pattern, it can really uh, absorb right the way to its apex has been detected. Not now, um, I've been in a lot of the chambers that that we have around here, and the thing that I have found amongst all of them is first of all, there's a sense of peace and tranquility. Second of all, there's almost a, a, a smell of ozone, and and third, um, there it's almost as though there's there's a um, cone of silence that's been put over you. Even though the chamber is next to the road, you don't hear the sound. Now, is that something similar to what goes on over there? Yes, definitely, because uh, an analogy that came to my mind straight away is like a twin sight to that one. It's a place called, and it's a funny old name, you know, but this is England. It's called Hetty Pegler's Tump. That's <laughs> why it's a funny old name. Uh, in a place called Gloucestershire, which is just off the road, like you're describing. It's, uh, uh, it's said to be a long barrow burial chamber, but clearly these places were used primarily for something like initiation or conscious raising, and then bones were placed into it as a secondary use yeah but at uh, Hetty Pegler's Tump if you go into one of the chambers just like you've described beautifully uh, Barbara you do have a sense of ease and a lot of people I notice I I people watch when I, I take people to these places and their shoulders suddenly drop you know, when you're holding on to tension in your shoulders and suddenly they droop slightly, that's one mm-hmm. of the first things that I notice. The shoulders drop a bit. People are letting go of the tension. And then they feel a sense of, of peace and wanting to stay and not wanting to leave. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's another expression. And the road isn't that far away. And 
they're, they're designed in such a way as it's an inner temple space that is separates the sacred from the profane outer regions, including noise. It's it's very similar to what I felt when I was in a crop circle. So that there's that that otherworldly feeling to it. It's just it's it's magical and. Um, you know, you kind of want to know where'd you come from, and it, it just you know it doesn't answer you. Um, you 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 do describe something which um, which fascinates me, and I'm going to pronounce it wrong. A fogu, a fogu, <laughs> yeah, fogu, yeah, yeah. Fogu is a truly uh, fascinating uh, monument, and little spoken about really, considering the you know uh, amount of Fogus that we have uh, across the British Isles and into places like France as well. You see, after the Neolithic period, uh, which was the time of the long barrows uh, about sort of 5,000 years ago, after that you had what's called the Bronze Age, which was about 4,500 years ago, from about 2,500 BC to about 750 Uh, BC. Then you had what's called the Iron Age from 750 BC right up into the Roman uh, invasion. And that's called the Iron Age. And that was the Iron Age of the the Druids were the kind of spiritual masters of the Iron Age. And uh, the monuments changed. So the transition from the, the, the Bronze Age tradition of making stone circles and standing stones and round barrows, that all changed. And a, a culture developed that had the Druidic priesthood that built earthwork circles on high, on, on the top of hills, literally crowning hilltops with a kind of circular earthwork enclosure. We called them hill forts, or now we're calling them ceremonial enclosures. So we have that as a Druidic uh, monument, and also you have the Fogu. And the, the Fogu is a, a chamber space that is very, very deep into the ground, sometimes as much as 25, 30 or so or more feet below ground level, where you're going deep, deep, deep uh, into, into the earth herself. And one of the most spectacular uh, Fogu monuments that I've interacted with was in a place called Orkney at a, a site called Mine Howe. And Mine Howe is truly extraordinary because basically, you know, there's an opening in the earth and uh, you descend down a spiral staircase. Yeah, of about 27 or so steps, which is a lunar number in itself. And then you have to take a kind of leap of faith. And then you just descend by jumping probably about a meter or two down. And then you land in what's called the innermost holiest of holies chamber. And that's where you do have totally sensory deprivation. I mean, today you have tiny little lights that kind of light up, you know, if, if a plane is in distress, those little lights go down, don't they? Yeah. I mean, uh, they have those like little fairy lights in them today. 
druids uh, had their initiation and maybe created magic and uh, changed their consciousness inside of these foggy monuments. They were in the pitch black. So they are so conscious changing and you don't need an hour in them. You don't need an hour of therapy in a fog. No. And, you know, they, it, it sounds like it's back to the womb. Exactly, it is. And it's, it's a truly a wonderful experience, which, which makes the kind of Neolithic uh, long barrow chambers uh, and the, uh, the Bronze Age chambers, you know, fail in a pale into comparison with, with the Iron Age Druidic uh, Fogu. It's, it's one of the most spectacular monuments in the British Isles. And they're hardly visited. So if you do find one in the British Isles, and there's quite a few in Cornwall, for example, uh, Scotland and in Ireland, then, then you'll probably have them to yourself. Well, it, it, I, I saw that you, you had some pictures of them, and the stones are massive, but they're intricately cut. I mean, they aren't rough. They are definitely something that was very carefully put together. And the purpose of them, I, you know, it, it doesn't look like they were used for burial. It looks like it was a ceremony of some sort. That's right. And quite a few only can contain one or two people. So they were, and they do change your consciousness. And then there's a, a Druidic tradition where you do have to go into the into the underworld to find your shadow. And then once you found your shadow, you you come up anew. And and in Druidism, you have three sacred chakra points. Uh, the, a, a, a Druid doesn't use the seven chakras of the Hindu and Chinese tradition. You have three. You have one center in the womb, whether you're a man or a woman. And then you have another center around the solar plexus area. And then you have another in the head. And the whole idea is you raise the energy, or the kundalini as it's often called, through the centers within the kind of depths of the earth. It's a very very ancient tradition and at some uh, fogus especially one uh, in Ireland called Oe Nagat cave of cats you would go in one way and you would come out another like a total and utter rebirth once these three centers or seven centers if you're into eastern philosophy and the kundalini rises you come out very very differently and, and to the druid you you contact to the muse you contact to, to the anun which is like the holy spirit and that fills you with inspiration and unconditional love well and i saw pictures of that one where where you can't go out a different way but i i mean it it was phenomenally constructed. It definitely was a channel of some sort. And it, it, does it follow a ley line? What do you get at Oina Gat uh, near Roscommon in Ireland, which is the monument you're describing? It is truly uh, astonishing because I just like to describe how you enter it to your listeners because you have to slide through this very small, narrow opening and then crawl along about uh, four or so meters and then it just descends into darkness. And, and then the Irish, I love the Irish because they don't have a nanny state. Of, of like in England oh you have to have health and safety you have to have lights they think oh, if you're stupid enough to go in it you're stupid enough to get out of it <laughs> we're not uh, mothering you here so you go down at your own risk but you know god bless the Irish to keep their sights intact and not manicured is a wonderful gift to us 
Uh, so you cool down and then you just go down and down and down and down into the darkness. And it can be quite scary. And then it opens up to this huge like cathedral space where you just look up and up and up and up probably about 20 30 uh, 35 feet high so you go from a confined space into an open space and then after that experience the sound toning in there is truly you you feel the resonance kick off your your body is extraordinary and then you would have come out a different way so you'd have gone in one way and come out uh, another and that's uh, these monuments you know were created by our ancestors and they can still be accessed and used today that's the magic that's their legacy that they've left for us today but no directions (laughs) no directions (laughs) no 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 manual (laughs) except for the druidic tradition that does Mm -hmm. speak of these uh, these monuments i mean the 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 druid manuscripts have come down to us some of which are kept in um, trinity college in dublin for instance do talk about these three sacred centers they do talk about the uh the inner waters within you they do talk about the inner waters within the earth and they talk about changing your consciousness that's the druid manuscript to some degree to their druidic sites they say that you can change uh, your inner self at these places and it's always for for the better always for the community well where did do you have any idea the origin of of fogu uh of the word yeah it's it's a cornish uh word uh kind of like uh, describing a cave uh, you know, uh, and in Ireland, you'll have different uh, uh, local words, you know, for them. So, so that's not the really kind of ancient way our ancestors would have talked about them. Oh, okay. uh, but it's, it's how we we describe them uh, today in an old, an old Cornish dialect, uh, which is different to you know how I speak uh, in English. But it, it could have its it could have some roots in a, an antiquity. Well, it's just it's it's. It's a term that I had not run across before, and I was fascinated to see the pictures of them because they they look like it's a rebirthing, it's an awakening, it's a it's a way of cleansing yourself, going back into the darkness and then coming out into the light. It is very much uh, like that. I mean, it really is. Uh, I did go into uh, Owena Gats with two guys. Uh, we were doing a, a megalithic documentary at the time, and uh, you know, one was—I wouldn't say cynical, but you know, was well, you know, it's it's good sight. Let's get down there. Let's let's see it. And he said, when he came out, he felt he said, "I'm different. I'm so so different." And uh, he kind of honoured the sight. And then I said to to him, "You've honoured that sight. Things will change for you." Because I think, you know, once you kind of recognize the change within, you recognize the change a- a- outside of us as well. And the, the difference between how, uh, how Druids would have used these ancient sites is they were collective. 
they would do things as a group, as a community. Today, uh, apart from you know small groups of of, of tourists uh, or spiritual pilgrims uh, that come to these sites, you tend to have people doing things by themselves a lot now, and I, uh, that's not how the the Druids recorded things. It was always for the betterment of the people, the community, and the, and the wider countryside, the fertility of the land, the fertility of the people. Well, not only that, but from the look of it, toning or chanting in a space like that would have been amazing. Yes, I mean, that, that certainly is an aspect uh, of, of these uh, temple spaces where, where you do feel the reverb. I mean, especially so in uh, Oe Nagaz and Mayan Howe. And I was with uh, Kerry Cassidy just two weeks ago in the King's Chamber uh, sound toning. Uh, actually, uh, uh, we have private access to it. And that was a wonderful experience because I'm not going to call it the coffin word, the S word, in the, the initiation <laughs> chamber. Yes. <laughs> I, won't, I won't buy into that. Uh, in, in the initiation chamber, I just had to go in when everybody started sound toning. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, the resonance going through me, I thought, oh, I better get up now because it was just too much, you know. And I went to stand up and I couldn't stand. I had to kind of fall back down again and think, okay, I'll I'll, I'll kind of sit on my knees for a while and hope I can get up. (laughs) And I I did and and had to literally stagger over to the far wall of the king's chamber. Were you able to go down the passageway to where the water used to be too? We didn't go down to that part. That was uh, uh, not access. We couldn't access uh, that part. Sometimes you can access these things in Egypt, uh, and sometimes uh, you can't. Uh, so no, I didn't there. But I did another site, uh, which is at the back of uh, a beautiful temple space called Abydos. Mm-hmm. And uh, in Abydos, it's quite famous if you know where to look. It's on the ceiling of all places. So you've got to get a, cho- a torch and uh, point to it. That's where you have that famous depiction of the helicopter, the plane, and the UFO. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's Abydos. Uh, and Abydos is actually a quite, a, a, in terms of the old kingdom and the new kingdom of Egypt, quite a relatively new temple, uh, quite influenced to a certain degree by the Greeks. Uh, and some of their temples are uh, in in Egypt, like uh, the Acropolis in Greece. But anyway, behind uh, Abydos, you have uh, a, a, a temple called the Osirin. And normally you can't get access to the Osirin, but our Egyptian uh, guide, uh, he was absolutely a brilliant, brilliant. He got us private access into this sacred space. And how the stones were absolutely perfect, huge uh, blocks of granite that must have weighed tons, really tightly constructed with that old adage, you can't put a credit card in between them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that, uh, that old saying, which is perfectly uh, true, kind of looking like a very contemporary Stonehenge, you know, the two and the, the trilithon on top with waterways all around it filled up with, sadly, rank water because this site even though it's older than Abydos it could even be older than the pyramids itself some suspect it's in a state of disrepair when we did go into the um, uh, temple space it was dirt there was 
the, the stench of bat poo, it was overwhelming uh, uh, ammonia. I can't describe it to you. And we all had to overcome that to go in. And the outside looks beautiful, but the inside, uh, and, I'm, and I was thinking, why? This, was, this is a beautiful temple. It's older. You're not allowed to go in it. It's not being uh, lovingly cared for the water channels are, are just full of rank water it's, it's a it's a sorry state wow it just it <clears throat> well it, it obviously isn't a huge tourist pool so they're not going to probably put the money into it it could be one of the biggest uh, tourist attractions, which would far outweigh uh, Abydos. It's got the Flower of Life carved uh, on it, uh, beautifully so. Uh, uh, there are just some temples out of bounds in Egypt. That's, that's uh, curious. It would be fun to research that and find out why. Um, <clears throat> before we run out of time, I did want to talk to you about the, the, the long skulls. Of Stonehenge that you discovered. Yes, yes, that was quite a, a, a truly remarkable find that changed the perception of the ancient Britons. Uh, I used dowsing. Uh, it's called the two-point fix, actually, and normally it's used by prospectors to find something. You know, be that water or be that an artifact, whatever. And I thought, I wonder if I changed it around the, and asked the landscape, uh, what do you want me to find? Not what I want to find. Well, what do you want me to find? And if I do, I'll tell your story. And I kind of put that out as my intent. And uh, I kept getting the two-point fix over this seemingly not too spectacular long barrow on a map. So I decided with a friend to go out there and investigate and I found it was the largest long mound ever constructed in northwest Europe it's massive wow. it's colossal it's like this snake uh, in in the landscape and normally and it's a neolithic monument dated to about 5,000 years ago and normally in that era long bowers were constructed for communal burials basically lots of people went into the long barrow sometimes as much as 40 and sometimes in places like wales over 100 people all shared the same resting place as a communal burial place so i thought wow here we are not far from stonehenge in this massive colossal long barrow it must have housed hundreds of, of stonehenge people no, it defied all of that, and it housed just one person. And I thought, that is so, so strange for that era. This must have been a special person. So I tracked the finds down after much ado to Cambridge University and got an appointment to view the skull. And as soon as I saw it, I realized it was a long skulled uh, uh, person, not a round uh, skulled person like the skulls that you and I have. And I noticed, just like uh, Brian uh, Forster's work on the Prakis skulls of Peru, that they only had two sutures, not the three like ah. what we have. 
Yeah. And because I'm quite a spiritual person as much as a, an archaeologist, uh, I did pray, uh, well, kind of rant uh, to Great Spirit <laughs> to get the curator out of the way for five minutes so I could be alone with this majestic uh, woman's skull. And, uh, and her pager went and she said, oh, you don't mind if I go for five minutes? And I kind of went, thank you for listening to my rant, Great Spirit. <laughs> <laughs> and then I put my hands around her throat chakra, her third eye and her crown chakra. And the only time I have felt energy like that was around a very large crystal skull. And, and I was in awe, in awe of her. And, and I realized she must have had a very prestigious uh, life around Neolithic Stonehenge, be that a high priestess or a high queen. And uh, the sad thing about Cambridge, may I just say, because we've been talking about Abydos, I'm in a big warehouse and it's all done to air quality because there's skulls in there. Very high tech. You know, you have to put in uh, a security code to get into the place. But on my left hand side, there's cardboard boxes saying Stonehenge with a male and female symbol on it. And on my right hand side, as far as I can look up and as far as I can see, which is about 20 feet up and 40 feet long, is Abydos written on boxes, Abydos female, Abydos male all the way down that corridor, some of which haven't even been viewed since the 1930s is a shocking fact of our history. It's unbelievable, isn't it? This is Cambridge University. But nonetheless, returning to to the Neolithic Queen, I then uh, found out her history that she'd been murdered to the back of her skull. And so I went on to investigate all of the other long barrows that were in a close vicinity to hers within a four or five mile radius and found that all of the long barrows uh, surrounding Stonehenge contained long skulled people, all of whom had been murdered to the back of the skull in a like either a kind of murder or a ceremonial killing. And at one particular barrow called Bowles Barrow, which is on MOD land. I mean, half of surrounding Stonehenge is MOD land. It's like Area 51. (laughs) You can't get on it. It's military owned. (laughs) Everything surrounding Stonehenge is a military establishment. Uh, It's truly amazing. And in this military no-go zone, because they test live ammo there, uranium-enriched ammo, you really don't want to be in that zone. Uh, there was one barrow, the Bowles Barrow, full of over 25 long-skulled males, all who have been terribly uh, slaughtered. They had defense wounds on their arms. One was beheaded and the rest were, were, were killed with a blow to the back of the skull. And then they were placed within the barrow and then a massive stone and a massive stone and a massive stone and a massive stone placed on top of them. So they would probably never have been found if it wasn't for the determination of some archaeologists over the period of 50 years to get to the bottom and record it in antiquarian times. It hasn't been excavated in modern times. Uh, I'm talking about, you know, in the late Victorian uh, period, I was reading the papers to do with these barrows 
Uh, so, yes, yeah, so the, the history of Stonehenge is truly fascinating because the long-skulled people just seem to have disappeared off the face of ancient Britain, yet they are the ancient Britons. And, and most uh, long-skulled people were across Europe, France and Sardinia as well. And then round about the Bronze Age, which is 2500 BC, that's around 4,500 years ago, all of the long barrows of the Neolithic period were decommissioned. And that means they were bones were placed into them or replaced into them. And the earth and, uh, was pushed into all of the chambers and a big stone put on the outside. And they were sealed off for all time until archaeologists cleaned them up and made them into the chambers that we see today. Yeah. So uh, during the Bronze Age, that happened. They were all decommissioned. No Neolithic monument, which all of which were elongated in shape anyway, like their skulls. You had elongated long barrows. Another monument called Cursor's Monument, which is an elongated monument. Then the design went to round stone circles and round barrows. And I noticed that in every single round barrow, not just surrounding Stonehenge, but in the British Isles, the only type of skull therein was round. So you had the long barrows for the long-skulled people and the round barrows for the round-skulled people. And uh, I, I mentioned uh, quite uh, to, to uh, other archaeologists uh, that were quite dismissive and saying that these monuments must have been inspired by their skull shape. Because the it cannot be a, uh, such a coincidence as that. And another thing that changed, the long-skulled people were communal people. They were buried together, apart from the Neolithic queen and some, probably some posh aristocracy <laughs> Neolithic people. Same old thing with Queenie today. But yeah. uh, uh, generally speaking, they were communal, uh, whereas in the Bronze Age, they were very much ego, more egocentric. It was for one person with lavish grave goods of gold and, you know, brooches uh, beneath the round uh, barrows. And that it was mostly orientated to the sun, these, these monuments, whereas before they were tended to be more orientated towards the moon. So it like switched from a goddess uh, orientated communal uh, community and civilization to a more egocentric, uh, solar-orientated, round-skulled uh, civilization that kind of took over from the long-skulled people is an archaeological fact that has been overlooked until I brought out a kind of small book because I wanted to talk about it and I didn't want people kind of taking my work. So I brought out a small booklet. But even in Oxford University, since my find, they are talking now about the long-skulled ancient Britons and what really did happen to all of those people that seemingly just disappeared. Yeah, because you know the only ones that I rec that I remember reading about in in even Egypt would would be um, uh, Akhenaten and King Tut and his wife, but you don't see any long skulls beyond those that I that I can think of. No, there was uh, some uh, mention in a few antiquarian uh, uh, reports, but apart from that, you're right, it did seem to focus on King Tut and, uh, and Akhenaten and Nefertiti, uh, his wife. But that said, if you go to uh, Malta, which has spectacular 
temple spaces there, such as Hajjaim. I mean, they are truly, truly spectacular. Uh, then you will find that according to the first archaeological dig of the Hypogeum, which is a truly astonishing monument, which is way down in the ground, built out of solid limestone bedrock with kind of these chambers within it. it it's, it's totally remarkable. The, the archaeologist on the dig, and that was only found in the 1930s, incidentally, the Hypogeum, but the archaeologist called Zanet, uh, he documented that he found the minimum of 10 long-skulled individuals. And it's, I actually went out of my way to buy the National Geographical magazine of the, of, in the 1920s that featured his article stating that he found these. But when I com communicated with uh, Heritage Malta asking could I view these skulls, they denied all of their existence. Now, I've been taking people to Malta over quite a few years now. And last year, it had a revamp, the visitor centre. So this year, when I took a group of people over, it was the first time I'd been back to the visitor centre since its revamp. And in a kind of cartoon font uh, that is totally kind of ridiculous, it mentions the long-skulled people and aliens in a jokey, very... Um, shocking manner uh, I felt from, from the font and even the people I was with saying why are they depicting the long skull people like it's a joke in cartoon font talking about ancient aliens well they could you know I, I flip back and forth but I mean just because they were different doesn't mean they're aliens <laughs> No, no, I, I, I mean, uh, Brian's uh, latest DNA test on the, an independent test on, the, on I think it was one of, one of the Paracas uh, skulls, uh, showed that their DNA originated from the Black Sea in the Crimea. Yeah, it, it seems to me that, that, that they were indigenous, but, but where in history to put them is a whole other ball of wax. Yes, exactly. And I think that's what, you know, archaeologists will try to, to piece together. And they are becoming very, very open minded. And uh, soon coming out of Oxford uh, Uni, certainly the, the time dates are going to go back. Oh, yeah. they're, really, they're, they're really going to shift. Uh, and uh, I'm not going to take anyone's thunder because there's going to be a paper uh, written, uh, but uh, it's going to go back. And it's down to a simple piece of evidence. You know, sometimes something stares archaeologists in the face <laughs> and it's so, so simple, but it's like bingo. Uh, this means that it's older. So, so yeah, I think we're going to go way back to the Mesolithic. They're not going to be called Neolithic monuments anymore. And the, the Mesolithic people are not going to be called hunter-gatherers anymore. And we're going to switch our, our heritage and our civilization way back. And rightly so in about time. Yeah, I was going to say it's it's absolutely about time here and here in the states. I keep telling people that that North America had cultures and civilizations for almost nine thousand years, and you know, history books are teaching about these little tribes of Indians that were overwhelmed by the Pilgrims, and that's just not the case. Exactly. I mean, exactly. I mean, it's reflected across the world that you know that the the very ancient 
um, Mesolithic cultures of 9,000, 10,000 years ago, and uh, which you've just uh, correctly stated yourself, Barbara, you know, the, it was happening all over the world, these high civilizations. And, you know, they did, they did incorporate, you know, a lot of the stuff that we recognize. I think what bothers me the most about the United States is when you say ancient history, everybody immediately goes to Greece, Rome, Egypt, and England. And they negate the fact that we have had ancient cultures here as well, and in South America. I mean, why would they think that there was this large tract of land that nobody did anything with? That just doesn't make sense. Yes, I know. And uh, I, I do sympathize with you there because when um, I take uh, Americans out to places like <clears throat> Stonehenge and Avebury and Stanton Drew and Glastonbury and places like that, in my presentation folder, I do have a lot of your ancient sites <laughs> in there at the back in Ohio and, you know, Jason's work on the giants. And, oh, yeah. You know, uh, and I show them, I say, this is your heritage. This is your ancient heritage. And do you know what? They're dumbfounded. They go, really? This, this is ancient America? Yes. This is, this is your heritage. Go uh, and honor, you know, your, your, your ancient sites. But I do feel after speaking with uh, quite a few people regarding uh, ancient America, is the school education system doesn't teach as widely as it should about the monumental side of America is what I've been told by uh, people from the States. Well, speaking as a school teacher, <laughs> yes, you're right. <laughs> um, I taught school, I taught special education for 25 years, and none of the textbooks that I have ever seen reflect any of the antiquity that we've been talking about. And it, it's here. It, people ignore it. People destroy it. People don't respect it. People don't, you know, they just think, well, this country was founded in 1776 and that's where our history starts. No, it's not. <laughs> I know. And that's why, you know, uh, at the moment with the, with the rich research being done uh, by some fantastic researchers, are bringing back uh, your history and and what I really truly hope is that the the education system will uh, will embrace the the, the 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 holy history of your land and begin to teach it to to the children that that could experience these ancient sites because one thing that we do teach children over here is Stonehenge and Avebury and all the ancient sites and they go out for little day trips there you know with oh yeah and, but, but even, even you know, one of the Canadian tribes, the Micmacs, 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 I, 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 I'm saying it wrong, I'm sure, but their flag, their their native flag is is the is is the Templar flag just in reverse. I mean, wow, it's it's it's, it's too much. I mean, that's thirteen, twelve, thirteen hundreds. Um, you know, if if in Canada. They had the Templars there, and I mean, they find Roman coins in the Mississippi Basin. Come on, there's got to be a reason there. I mean, it just it 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 it's something I stand on the soapbox on on a, on a lot of occasions. Um, people see me coming and they ask, "Does she have her soapbox with her?" Um, you know, I just it's an outrage to think that that we're on 
or on land that has an antiquity to it that goes back thousands of years. And we're not honoring it. Well, to find Roman coins in the base of the Mississippi, I think you said, I mean, that's indisputable evidence. It's physical. Uh, that's, you know, that's, I mean, uh, to me, it makes sense that the Vikings went there, the Romans went there, because they colonized the rest of the world, you know, and they were good seafarers. The Vikings could, you know, go anywhere, and they they did. Uh, oh, and so, you know, I find it kind of strange when everything stops in America, apart from Columbus. <laughs> it's well, like he look, got through. <laughs> look at look at the, the copper mines in Michigan and Minnesota. They've been in in production for 9,000 years. Again, that's just such strong evidence of, you know, human activity. And they've been able to trace that, that copper into 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 Europe and into Greece and into Rome because you know every every mine has a different um, um, cosmology to it has a different um, makeup to it so they can basically if they have the raw metal they can they can tell you where it was mined and yes yeah I mean that again it's just indisputable evidence that is you know either been uh, ignored uh, or you know should should be uh, studied and taught it's it's just so so sad well that's not the only thing that should be taught i mean the ley lines the 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 geospirals i mean these are things that the children should know about so that they could incorporate it into their life and and what they do with their lives i mean the ley lines come on it's yeah, I mean, and it's interesting to note because we've just discussed the long-skulled people. It was the long-skulled people that first uh, identified uh, and monumentalized the ley lines. Why? Because if you look to the oldest monuments on the leys in the uh, UK, then they are Neolithic, which means that they were long skulled. Uh, and then later on in the Bronze Age, when the round skulled uh, Europeans or the so-called beaker culture, but that's been disputed uh, at the moment, uh, came across from Europe, they added to that lay system. And then even later than that, the Christians placed the churches on uh, previous pagan sites and added to the lay system. So, I mean, the Knights Templar added to the, the lay system. They all lined their monuments on it. But the first monuments that were laid out in a linear fashion were from, from the long-skulled long people, which I suspect strongly, and obviously I've got no proof whatsoever, uh, it's just a, a hunch, that because of their, you know, larger brain capacity in the long skull, maybe even their sensitivity to the Earth's voltages and currents and lines of force like lays and grid lines, they were sensitized to them enough to lay their monuments upon them. Could be. I, I just know that when, when you look along these ley lines um, and you see all of the ancient structures that are on them, there has to be a reason. And, and it couldn't just be, this feels right, let's build here. I mean, it, it had to be that there was, there was some energy that drew people to those spaces. That's right. And with, with, with the lays, they do transmit. That is the, one of their best functions. 
so yeah, so like I was describing the energy bands earlier, well, they can feed into that kind of lay system, yeah, uh, and allow it to be highly charged with energy. And then when you get the lay system that has the Earth's living currents wrapped around it, that's even even more more beneficial for human for humanity than the lays themselves. And if you look to France. And you look at some of their lay systems, they become even more extraordinary than the English lay systems. Uh, because when the ancients laid out the French lay network uh, from one place in southern France, quite close to Geneva, uh, upon which CERN particle accelerator is being placed upon, cannot be a coincidence, yeah. but uh, it's, it's literally 24 lines creating a powerful nexus that goes through Italy, Spain, Switzerland. It's literally the European lay network. And if you look to Rome uh, on this uh, European lay network, uh, which is featured in one of my books, Divine and Ancient Sites, you can literally see that the Romans marched and created their roads on the, these grid systems. Yeah. So a lot of the, the Roman roads followed these huge, huge, long uh, energy lines of force, which, like I said, are highly energized and therefore you do not tire as much if you follow and put roads on these lines. They speed up things quite naturally. Wow. <coughs> Excuse me. Um if that's the case, if they are energy lines, would they be communication lines as well? Well, there was a great experiment done in uh, the 80s, actually, by uh, some uh, students uh, that studied uh, with, uh, with myself and some other dowsers uh, and my late father that decided to do experiment to see if you could use lasers communication network. Now, it was long uh, said that after the agricultural experiments on lays with the stunted growth because of the transmission speed of the electromagnetic force going through it, could other stones like granite, like crystal, uh, quartz crystal rather, inhibit the transmission? And could some stones enhance the transmission? And it was found like granite can enhance it. It speeds it up even more. But certain types of quartz crystals could stop that that flow for a while. Yeah. So if you placed uh, a crystal or a, to the a lot quite a large crystal onto a lay flow you can stop it and you could start a kind of binary code of yes and no's on and offs by using the uh crystals to stop the lay network so so yes yeah, certain large stones can slow slow it down and certain stones can speed up a lay system Really, it depends on the shape of the monument as well on the lay and a lot of other factors. And this is what our ancient ancestors knew. It's not just the power in the line. It's the shape of the monument you put on the line and the type of stone that you put on the line as well will either enhance or inhibit. It's, it's a long lost te technology. It truly is that was mastered by, first mastered by the, by the Neolithic who placed uh, their long barrows on them, which always had large, large standing stones uh, on the frontispiece that could transmit uh, energy along the line. 
it sounds like it's a science that's been lost and, and it, there, there has to be somebody that is working on recovering it. Well, exactly. There's a lot of people uh, in the UK and, and Egypt. There's some very, very good uh, dowsers in France and all of us together. Uh, we're, we're truly looking at ways to bring this uh, information back for people like uh, architects. But the shape of something that you put onto uh, a lay is, is really important. I don't know about your places in New England and, you know, Dennis Stone and uh, the, the Stonehenge of America, but uh, quite a lot of our chambers were corbelled, meaning like arched shaped. Yeah, all of ours are. Well, whenever you get that arched shape, okay, we call it corbelled uh, design, and it creates that kind of uh, semicircular arc shape that can generate a force of energy, which is truly the strongest form of Earth energy called negative green. Yeah. And uh, the dome shape does that. And the pyramid shape uh, generates uh, a negative green, which is related to the sun's rays. Uh, anyway, the French diviners first recognized the force called negative green in the Valley of the Kings uh, in Egypt. And they notice on certain of the uh, of cartouche on a cartouche this particular design, and they saw these objects because um, the French were top archaeologists back in the day of the 1920s and 30s, and literally went through Egypt, probably doing what they like and taking back to France what they like, yeah. including <laughs> obelisks and zodiacs, and you know, uh, apologies, ancient Egypt for that. Uh, but nonetheless, they found these energy devices in the form of pendulums. And one, one today is still called the Isis pendulum and the Karnak pendulum. And they were two French diviners called Chaumerie and de Belazal. And they noticed that the shape of the, the semicircle and the pyramid generated this high form of energy. And Chaumerie was uh, not just a dowser. He was a scientist that had a laboratory. And he filled an object bit like the Isis uh, pendulum and, and uh, on cartouches, this particular design that is seen throughout ancient Egypt, he filled that object with negative green and he was found in his laboratory one week later, completely mummified with no spell, smell of fermentation. And that has gone down in dowsing history. Uh, for the use of negative green earth energy. It could be uh, free energy. And it was actually said by de Belazal, de, de Belazal which worked with Traumary, that you know, the negative green was probably the cause and the cure of cancer. And they thought it was such a strong force generated by Ra, the sun god, that was received by Gaia, the goddess. And between this, that feeds into the lay system and the corbelled shape of the roofs provide that energy in its positive form. Um, Chaumery was filling it so much with the negative form of uh, negative green. That's why he was mummified. Wow. <clears throat> well, the, the chambers here are all corbelled and they're done dry construction. There's no mortar or anything, and yet they are watertight and, and you know, amazingly sealed. And still, and yet we don't know how old they are. So it could be hundreds, thousands of years that they've been standing. And it does make one wonder. 
<clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, exactly. The the same design you find throughout the ancient world of the corbelled dry stone walling uh, technique. You could find that in a Nuragi temple in Sardinia at the West Kennet Long Barrow down the road from me. And you've clearly, you know, investigated and have knowledge about these ancient sites uh, in your own land, all of which reflect an archetypal design canon. This is how you build this structure, and this is uh, will generate energy that can be passed uh, along uh, the lakes. I mean, that's the the, the fast, fascinating uh, thing. And you see, what what the the French diviners did was they looked at the electromagnetic spectrum of the sun uh, in relation to the earth and realized that at particular times of the day, a particular color becomes more prominent. So, for example, at noon GMT, uh, Greenwich Mean Time, uh, at noon, the green ray is more prominent. Yeah. So certain tests above corbelled roof structures showed, according to their work, that green was more active then. And at sunset, the red ray uh, becomes more active. And it seems that the ancient designers were fully aware of the electromagnetic spectrum of the sun, including its invisible colors, which are ultraviolet, infrared, and what Dowsers call uh, infra-black and infra-white, uh, ultra-white, sorry. So uh, the, the, that's another aspect of lays and uh, earth energies, that uh, the sun's energy interacts with them and that creates energy in its own right. Now, what did Chormi and Belazel do with all of this fascinating work, apart from go around uh, testing, you know, uh, for yeah. different types of mummification? At that moment in the 19 kind of 50s and the 60s period of dowsing history, people got into psychic dowsing, which is when you get a pendulum and you ask it questions. Yes, no, yes, no. And you, you ascertain information yeah. through information dowsing. And they were appalled by that. They thought that was no longer a science and it was entering a subjective realm because sometimes... Uh, it, uh, psychic pendulum dowsing can be correct, very correct, or very incorrect uh, as well if, if dowsers remain in their truth. So they handed all of their papers to an architect in Egypt, and he is looked into their work, and he is uh, uh, one of the world authority on negative uh, green energy and how to enhance its positive horizontal horizontal flow and I'm one of the few UK dowsers that was taught to learn to identify negative green at ancient sites and in the landscape generally but um, the Egyptian dowser is called Karim uh, he's gone on to develop uh, different types of architects patterns and shapes including that corbel design that enhance buildings yeah, and hospitals. So a lot of work is being done by dowsers to uh, encourage uh, people to realize that even the shape of where you live, a lovely curve every now and again allows the qi energy to flow. And that's why in ancient China, they didn't have straight roofs because qi travels too fast along a lay. They made all of their roofs slightly horseshoe shaped, don't they? So qi mm -hmm. flows gently along the rooftops. Well, I think one of the the major mistakes we make is that 
people assume that because we're talking about thousands and thousands of years ago, they could not have been in, as intelligent as we are. And the reality is, it, it seems to me they were more intelligent than we are because they lived with the energy of the earth and they utilized it to their benefit. Absolutely. And it has been shown uh, that, you know, the long-skulled people did actually have a bigger brain capacity than we have today and that they lived more in harmony. They do, you do not, in ancient British terms of the Neolithic period, find, apart from when they, the long-skulled people were murdered collectively, any evidence for really bad violence of course you're going to get the the odd murder you do in any uh, society but it wasn't really until the the bronze age where you had what's called land division in the neolithic period of the long skull people there was no land division and in the in the bronze age with the the onset of places like stonehenge and the uh, stone circles you had massive what we call ranch boundaries and ditch boundaries which says this is my land and that is yours this is mine and that is yours and then you had kingship developing with uh, the very very rich Wessex elite which were the kind of rich aristocracy that went into the round barrows that surround uh, Stonehenge so you really did have a classes system born in the late bronze age that to be quite frank is so integrated into the English psyche that we still haven't got rid of that classist system today. Yeah. Oh, that's such a shame. Um, <clears throat> we're coming to the end of our time. And I, before we get there, I want to make sure that you, I put out the wrong, um, <clears throat> the wrong website for you. And, and you're at esotericcollege.com and averyexperience.co. UK. That's right. It's esotericcollege.com for all of my courses on Dowsim, past life regression, and Druidic soul star uh, astrology. And all of my tours where I go, I go to Malta, Sardinia, and Egypt uh, with international groups can be found at the Avery Experience dot co dot uk so yes and i've got a, a books and uh some interesting articles on the avebury experience so do check that out yeah and i will make sure that your books are on my website as well <clears throat> i want to thank you so very much for you know hanging in there with me and getting this going because um this has been fascinating and i know that we're going to have a lot more questions for you so hopefully i can get you back again sometime soon it's been an absolute delight and pleasure to talk with you, Barbara. You're very knowledgeable yourself, and you clearly have a passion for the uh, ancient American ancient sites. So, hey, we're sisters in that respect. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I want to thank everybody for listening. Hang on there just a few minutes, Maria. And uh, <clears throat> I want to thank everybody for, for being here and listening. And uh, make sure you check out her websites and her YouTubes, which are fascinating as well.